Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor of the TLS, and in the absence of our usual host, Thea, I'm joined this week by Toby Lichtig, the TLS's fiction and politics editor, also a familiar voice to many of you. Hello, Toby. Hello, Lucy. How's it going? All right. How are you? Yes, good. It's sunny. It's spring-like. Uh, yeah, all, all is well. Good. Now, Toby, when we were um, talking about whether you come on the podcast and you said you didn't really... You didn't really, it's not that you didn't want to talk about gardening, but you didn't feel that maybe it was your strong suit. But you did say that you had some some um, London wildlife spotting that well, you might share with us. Yes, I do. Um, in the, There's been some interesting sightings around my way recently. So I, I live in North London around Stamford Hill and we live near Woodbury Wetlands, uh, where not only have we seen uh, coots, uh, little cootlets, coot chicks, I guess they're called, um, hatching. They've been very delightful um watching the the coots being fed by their doting parents we've seen toads recently oh less cute less cute their toads are amazing though and although i didn't see it myself my partner saw some toad spawn um did you know that toads lay their spawn in a straight line i didn't no, but why? I, I mean, know. why not? But why? Why not? So, frog spawn is a kind of this sort of homogenous mass, but toad spawn, uh, toad spawn, it seems, is laid in these lines, and it's remarkable. I, I, I saw saw a photo of that, and then even more amazingly, uh, there was a grass snake. Oh, yeah, one doesn't really expect to see snakes in London, uh, but our local little park um, had a grass snake. It was dead. Uh, which makes it less special, perhaps, but it also meant we could see it. Some people, <laughs> some people might prefer to see <laughs> the dead snake, but no, it would, be, it would be exciting to see uh, the live snake. Was it very big? Uh, well, it was smaller than it should have been because a bit, a bit of it was bitten oh, off. Foxes or cats <laughs> I think a fox or something. Have bitten a bit of its tail off. So, um, and my kids were obviously I mean, young children. They were delighted and just sort of poked it a bit and then put some grass on top of it. Um, it was reasonably big. It is not the first snake I've seen in London. I did in Richmond Park see quite a big, very bright green grass snake once. Uh, but yeah, what about you? Have you ever seen these snakes in London? No, it, it wouldn't occur to me that yeah. that that it would be a snake unless I'd have to um, 
I'd have to really, um, I don't know what the word is, I'd have to really be convinced. Somebody would have to say, no, it really is a snake. It wouldn't occur to me that I suppose there are little grass snakes around. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're kind of everywhere. It's just we don't tend to see them. But I mean, they're pretty unmistakable when you do see them. It's quite hard to to think it's something else that then, you know, they're not largely. No, no, no. I, I mean, I hope it would occur to me that it was a snake and I should probably get out of the way. They're not, um, they're not harmful, though, at all, are they? No. No, quite the opposite. Anyway, that's all very exciting. It makes a change from foxes um, and cats. It does. It's it's funny which different city you live in. I remember telling um, some uh, friends who live in Lyon that there were loads of foxes in London they were visiting, and they thought I was pulling their leg. They were really laughing and going, yeah, right, you've got foxes. And I was like, no, we really we really do have quite a lot of foxes. They and then they so came exotic. here. Yeah, and they were, <laughs> they were amazed. But um, snakes are even better. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, coming up on this week's show, we'll talk about a new film, Minari, released this week in the UK, which is about marriage, family, migration, community, religion, belonging, and much more. And we'll catch up with Toby's fiction pages this week, from artistic borrowing to rock and roll butlers. But first, although physical travel is still very much restricted, we can still wander freely in our minds. And today, we're going to visit New York, and Toby is going to guide us there. From Edith Wharton to Edward Hopper, Woody Allen to Nora Ephron and Jay-Z, the New York City imaginary is central to a certain idea of America, a place of ferment and opportunity, vitality and hardship, the loud, the louche and the lonely. But following decades of gentrification, suburbanization and homogenization, has the big apple lost its bite? New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. New York, you're safer and you're wasting my time, sang James Murphy of LCD Sound System. And that was well before the current pandemic hollowed out the city, killing 30,000 people, emptying the sidewalks, closing down its cultural scene and shuttering the shops. How will New York bounce back? In this week's TLS, Mary Norris, a New Yorker herself and a longtime contributor to and editor at What Else? The New Yorker magazine, reviews three pie-ends to the city in the form of a film, a book about a hotel, and another book based on a series of conversations with the city's denizens, the bankers, designers, photographers, car thieves, nannies, lawyers, electricians, and hospice nurses that make the place what it is. Mary, hello. Thanks for joining us. Oh, hello. It's so nice to uh, be speaking with you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. Um, and yeah, how, how is New York currently looking uh, uh, sort of one year on from the pandemic? Is, is life coming back to the city? Well, I would say that life is coming back to the city and it's well-timed to spring. The city is looking beautiful with the magnolia trees about to burst and daffodils in the parks. And today, a windy, beautiful day. Um, I know it's kind of treacherous. It is still March. And as we know, April is the cruelest month. (laughs) But, but there's hope. There, there really is hope now. There are people in the streets more. Loads and loads of sidewalk cafes that we didn't used to have before, which I hope will actually continue after this scare passes. Oh, that's interesting. So it's almost it's, there's a kind of new sort of trade that's kind of sprung up in the last year or so, has it? Has it? Yes, there used to be all kinds of draconian regulations about opening um, the front of your restaurant, you know, opening on the street. And it didn't used to be pleasant either. You know, you'd see people eating outside and they looked like pigs lined up at the trough. (laughs) And they were, all they were doing was watching buses go by, you know, so that was not so pleasant. But now 
They um, loosened up the regulations so that the restaurants could stay in business. And a lot of restaurants built little sheds, little cabins, um, or they got some of those plastic bubbles that they could fit a table and chairs and people in and put them in the street and lit them up with lights at night and decorated them with either artificial or real flowers. And it all has a kind of festival appearance, actually. I keep thinking of an Italian street festival. Um, let's get on to the, the review. So it's a, it's a review in three parts. Um, let's start off with the first component, which is the book New Yorkers by Craig Taylor. What is this book and, and, and who are the people he's talking to? Yes, it's an oral history, basically. Um, Craig Taylor also compiled a, such a book about Londoners, and this time it's our turn in New York. He goes around talking to all different kinds of people in different trades, and also people on the street, people who are landlords, people who have trouble with their landlords, performers, all of whom sadly are out of work right now or working on Zoom. And I don't want to call it a cacophony because it's wonderful voices, but it's a lot of voices. 75 people in all, I believe he said he talked to. And what's remarkable is that they've all figured out a way to live in New York City. You know, it's not an easy place to get a foothold in. You come, you've got to find a place to live. You have to find a job that will pay for your place to live. And it's a struggle. And I don't think anyone really feels firmly entrenched here until at least five years after they've arrived. It takes some time. So the book goes all over the five boroughs, you know, Manhattan, Queens, Bronx, Brooklyn, and Staten Island, and talks to a variety of people. They all have very strong feelings about New York. And there's, there's even one who has just arrived and isn't sure he's going to make it. It catches up with the pandemic. There, there is one person who Craig Taylor had talked to previously and gotten a lot of information from a personal injury lawyer who contracts COVID. And so Taylor goes back and talks to him about his experience in the hospital. So the book is very up to date that way. And did it take many years to compile? Would you know when he started working on the project? He spent six years on the project. Wow. And you know, he's not from here. And I think that's interesting. And I think it takes somebody who is not from here, but who still has the confidence to come here and try it out to write a book like this, to compile a book like this. He's got, I mean, he's got a tremendous ear. I, I'm familiar with his work from a newspaper column that he used to have many years ago in this country in The Guardian. I don't know if you remember it, Lucy, um, A Million Tiny Plays About Britain. Yes, I do remember that. It was very, very good. Totally brilliant. And they, it, it sort of took the form of these serialised snippets of overheard, I think a lot of it was invented, invented conversation, you know, two people chatting on a bus or whatever. And they were so pithy, weren't they? And he packed so much into these small exchanges. I haven't read Londoners um, or his previous book, Return to Aikenfield, which is about, um, I think it's in a Suffolk village and it follows in the footsteps of Ronald Blythe. But so I, I'm sort of interested in how he works on this bigger canvas, because it sounds like it really does work, um, you know, on, you know, when he's given kind of space. How, how does it kind of, how does the book cohere and what's the kind of, What's the sort of narrative arc, if, if, you know, even if there is one? Well, what he does 
And I think his editor had a lot to do with this. You know, what he did, of course, was conduct the interviews and keep notes and write everything down and try to give it some shape. But it's the order that the pieces are in that really give it its momentum. So, you know, some theme will be picked up in each section and passed on like a torch from one speaker to the next. So that there are, it's like overtones. You know, the book, I find it very musical somehow. I think in its structure, you know, it spreads out, it has themes, the themes come back and get repeated and get embellished. And then it keeps moving forward. So, you know, it's not according to Burrow, it's not geographical. It's more a book that is about the theme. I wondered if we could talk about the, the, next, uh, the next celebration of New York uh, now um, uh, in your review. And it's a, it's a film, uh, it's a documentary directed by Martin Scorsese called Pretend It's a City. Um, and it's about the writer and performer, would you say, Fran Leibovitz? What kind of a film is it? I mean, is it, is it just a kind of pure portrait of her in the city or how would you describe it? Well, it's a documentary and it's been sewn together from several events that Fran Lebowitz did. And one of the scenes that's woven into this documentary is of Fran Lebowitz and Martin Scorsese on stage, I think at the film premiere, taking questions from the audience and she gives her answers. And then they meet for formal, I guess, although it is very informal interviews at the Players Club, which is um, a very comfortable place, you know, wood, lots of wood and leather chairs. They also meet in the library, the New York Public Library in the Stacks. And oh, most interesting is that they go to the Queens Museum where there is a diorama of New York City a panorama actually of New York City with all the buildings and the rivers and the and the parks. It's um, a scale model that was built by Robert Moses in the 60s for the New York World's Fair. So they're looking around there and she's stepping over some of the buildings walking on the river and they're talking about New York and the way it's changed and, and you know the title, Pretend It's a City, that comes from Fran Lebowitz's remark that she wishes she could make to people when she's taking a walk in the city, and there are a lot of shots of her walking in different parts of the city. Well, you know, when you're a New Yorker, you got to get where you're going, right? <laughs> so anybody on the sidewalk in front of you who stops dead, say, to pick up a penny off the sidewalk, you know, they're in danger of getting knocked on their head. So what she would like to say to them is pretend it's a city. Pretend it's a city where people are doing something besides sightseeing. <laughs> and uh, Fran Leibowitz, I think would, you would call her now a social critic <laughs> now that she hasn't been writing in a long time. But somehow she has managed to use her wits to stay in the public sphere and to get lots of attention and to say lots of funny things. And she has a huge following. Does, does she talk about her writer's block? In this film, because I think she didn't she write is it two or three incredibly successful books in the late seventies and early eighties, and then she hasn't published. Is that right? She hasn't published a book since then, but has been working on one or two or several. Is that something she talks about in the in the film? She's very funny. She avoids it. <laughs> um, 
there's a scene of her on the David Letterman show. And, you know, of course, that's the question everybody wants to ask. Is it true that you have terrible writer's block? So he starts by saying, is it true that you suffer? And she cuts him off and says, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was thinking as I was looking back uh, on his filmography, I mean, obviously Scorsese is so famous for his fiction films, but he's directed a lot of documentaries over the years, hasn't he? I mean, there are some famous rock music ones, but he's done, I think think his first documentary was a portrait of his parents many, many years ago. And I just wondered how you think he stands up as a documentary maker, because he's not, you know, people don't really think of him as a documentary maker. Well, I don't think of him as a documentary maker, but I did recognize in this documentary some of the um, methods, the fiction of making films that are um, not documentaries. I noticed this especially when I saw his very long film for Netflix, The Irishman. Yes. You know, it is a, one of his typical mafia stories, uh, but it's, of course, it's about an Irishman instead of an Italian. And I noticed in that film that you could see there were several plot threads going on. You know, one of them was the character, the Irishman played by Robert De Niro, making friends with this mafia boss, uh, Joe Pesci's character, I think. And the the film ran something like, can it be six hours or four hours? And I think if he had made it in the old Hollywood style, he would have had to cut it quite a lot. But because it was so slow, I could see the way that he picked up this theme of the relationship between De Niro and Pesci, the two main characters, he would just pick it up a couple times in maybe each hour's segment, and you would see how that developed while more immediate things were going on in the life of the Irishman, you know, his problems with his wife, his problems with his businesses. So there were a lot of things going on at once that gave it momentum and also gave it, um, what's the word, coherency? So it's almost like he's, a, he's an observer within the context of his own filmmaking. That's really, yes. yeah, yes. That's a really interesting idea. I like that. I always, um, I always feel that for his documentaries, he's much, he's much kinder. He's much more likely, isn't he? he? He makes documentaries, it seems, about things that he loves, uh, whereas the films have got a much colder eye. Yes, I, I think that's right. Um, I think he, well, that would be a way to do it, to make, you know, I mean, a film, a documentary is um, a long-term project. And of course, you would want to do it about something that you loved. That's something that is so apparent in this Fran Leibowitz documentary. He laughs at all her jokes and she loves it when he laughs at her jokes. So that they have really good <laughs> chemistry together. Um, next up, the, the third part. Um, and that is, uh, it's a book about the Barbizon Hotel on, on Manhattan's Upper East Side, which, um, well, which is no more in its, in, in its current, in its previous state. Uh, and it's a, it's a book by Paulina Bren about this iconic institution. Um, what did you make of the book? And can you tell us a little bit about the hotel itself? Well, I enjoyed the book. I, would uh, I confess I would not have read it if I hadn't been um, given this wonderful assignment by the TLS. And it gave a lot of history of the whole 20th century because that it was, I I think, 19, oh gosh, I've forgotten the date, like 1917 or very early on that 
this hotel was built with specifically women in mind. Um, I hadn't realized it, but before then, a woman couldn't register in a hotel without being thought to be doing business there, if you know what I mean. So this hotel was safe for women. I think a lot of wealthy people financed their daughters' stays in New York by, you know, they, they didn't want their daughters to go to New York, but if they insisted, then at least they should have a safe place to stay. I had never even noticed the place myself because it is so far out of my range of experience. You know, <laughs> my experience was, you know, the Lower East Side back in the 70s and 80s and a loft way downtown in the financial district before anybody lived down there. You know, there was no way that I was going to be living in a nice hotel on the Upper East Side. So I hadn't had never stopped and looked, but I went up there and looked at the building and it's just a, an amazing building. Still, I would guess a landmark in, in New York City, something like 23 stories high with all kinds of um, brickwork on it and places where you can see there are terraces and leaded glass and little balconies and the, the rooms for the women uh, the public areas looked like they were sound like they were very beautiful. A mezzanine in the lobby, and a, a gym and swimming pool. The rooms, though, sound like dormitory style. Long hallways with single rooms, and each room would have just a bed, a desk, a dresser, and um, uh, a basin, a sink, because they shared bathrooms. But they were decorated well, you know, with matching bedspreads and curtains. And it gave uh, women a safe haven and also kind of a built-in friends, you know, built-in friends in a way, or at least a built-in social life because there were all these other women and there were services for them in the lobby, a coffee shop and um, probably a newsstand and dry cleaners, things that you need. Would people sort of stay for months at a time, you know, to kind of complete assignments and, and that kind of thing? Or was it more of a kind of passing through place? I think people did stay for months at a time and people stayed forever. You know, there are still people there. They're called the women. And because of New York's um, rental laws that, let's see what they call them, um, laws that protect tenants, um, some women who lived there for years and years. They, were, they just always lived there and hung out in the lobby because they could afford it. They were protected. Their rent was kept low and they had no place else to go and they have never gone. When the hotel was made over and um, you know, even now, I believe, now that it is um, a private property with co-op apartments in it, these women were able to fight or their lawyer was able to fight. And there are special provisions for these women to stay there at an incredibly low rent. That's amazing. Wow. So there, there are still some sort of today. Do you know how many are left from the, yes. from the kind of the, the pre? It sounds like they still have some left in the book, which just came out. And I think, you know, it's pretty up to date. There are still some left. There's one who has collected her, who has a lot of um, mementos and 
um, notes and is probably intending to write her own memoir about living in the Barbizon. There is something in New York called an SRO, single room occupancy hotel. And it's for, generally it's for people who are down on their luck. They just have one room, right? And it's in a building with shared uh, toilets and things. And um, they stay there for, you know, it's, it's as cheap as it gets to live in New York, to stay in one of those places. Uh, but to think of, of the elderly women um, residing in an SRO, which is essentially what they're doing now in their rooms reserved for them at what used to be the Barbizon, is pretty incredible. Still to come on the show, new fiction and a new film, Minari, a quiet, luminous pastoral that comes garlanded with Oscar nominations. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, this is a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free via Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast provider, and you'll never miss an episode. You can also get a subscription offer just for our podcast listeners if you go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, Toby, since we've got you here and you are the fiction editor, can you tell us um, what's on your fiction pages this week, please? Yes, I can. Um, so, kicking it all off, um, there's a piece by Lamorna Ash uh, on a new book by Chris Power uh, called A Lonely Man. Um, Chris Power is better known as a short story writer, but it sounds like this kind of foray into or onto a broader canvas has gone really well. It's, just, it's a novel about narrative authenticity and artistic borrowing with an underside of spy thriller. Um, it features a man in Berlin who meets a ghostwriter with a story uh, and then this man steals the story for his own novel. Um, so it's, kind of, you know, it's, it's about borrowing uh, and our, uh, Le Morna, our reviewer, makes a really really good uh, comparison uh, in the opening of the review. She, she talks about an earlier story by Power about a comedian whose routine um, is to present a dead famous comic stand-up set verbatim. So he's clearly very interested in this idea of um, theft, borrowing, inspiration, that kind of thing. Um, and it sounds really well done. And if you do that, I guess you get, I think she says, doesn't she, you sort of get two for one because you get the story, the, the, the sort of spy story that the guy is telling him. And then you also get the story at a further remove of of, of how he's taking it and adapting it and what he's doing with it. Yeah, exactly. So she says it's it's a uh, fact. I'm going to read the quote because it's quite nicely put. She says, she says power holds in a state of suspension two distinct narrative modes, and exactly as you say, one of them is this kind of spy thriller. One of them she characterises as a kind of piece of loose, elegant literary flaneurism reminiscent of Ben Lerner et al. Um, and she says this balancing act is expertly handled. Both styles are refreshed and made strange by their contact with the other. I think it's a really nice way of putting it. It's a really nice idea to use different styles to kind of make us think anew. Um, so it sounds great. I'm, I'm, I'm I haven't read the book yet, but I'm definitely sold um, on the basis of that piece. And then the other one on that page is also a sort of spy. Well, yeah. It's loosely linked, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so I, I think it's always nice when pieces speak to each other. And yeah, this is a, this is a book by Sergei Lebedev, um, a Russian novelist. Uh, the book's called Untraceable. Uh, the piece is by Leslie Chamberlain, um, and the, the novel's about this perfect poison. The clue is in the title, um, and it's about this poison developed by Russian intelligence services, and there is a plot within it to remove a defector who knows a little bit too much about the poison. So it's very kind of Le Carre-esque, as is part of the plot to the Chris Powers book. Um, there's, again, I've got, I've got the quote from our reviewer. Both the hunted and the hunter have uneasy consciences as well as self-justifying stories they tell themselves. And it is the professional psychological mess in both of their heads that puts them pair on a course to meet, evade or kill each other. Um, let that not whet your appetite. It sounds great. It does. It does. It also sounds not very far from real life, really. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, Russian, Russian poison. And actually, Leslie mentions in her piece uh, a, a grand tradition of... Russian storytelling, both in prose and poetry, about poisoning. <laughs> so the, there's a Pushkin poem she refers to about the, the, the Tsar's poison arrows. So it's not just a, something with a political history, it's something with a, a literary history as well. Mm. And then on, on, on my next page, it's kind of a page of weirdness, uh, wonderful weirdness. Um, there's a review by Harry Strawson of Sam Byers' new book, uh, Come Join Our Disease, which sounds totally crazy. It's about, a, essentially, it's about a woman who goes feral. Um, she opts out of society and joins this kind of bestial commune and ends up wallowing in her own dirt. It's very scatological and foul and really fun sounding. 
Um, I've called the piece Choose Filth, with apologies to Irvin Welsh. Very good. Can I just say, I, I think we got a different definition of fun because because <laughs> <laughs> that I did read I did read that piece, but it did stay with me as Miss <laughs> Trawson says it. You will definitely remember oh the God. book <laughs> because it's well. No, I suppose. Um, it's just it's not for the squeamish, is it? Because it is it's disgusting. A lot of I yeah. mean, we haven't even I haven't read the book, but what what he's what he's describing happens in the book is disgusting, and it's supposed to be. That's the point. It's supposed to be, and it's this. You know, I won't list the details for our more squeamish listeners, but the bodily fluids are ingested and all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, it's a kind of a it's a I guess it's a an anti-capitalist uh i don't know if polemic's quite the right word polemic in 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 literary form but it's yeah it's very much a kind of two fingers up to the system um and uh yeah if, if anyone who follows sam Byers on twitter for example will know that he's fairly outspoken um about social issues so it seems to be uh very much coming out of his his own kind of political uh political standing and the um the commune that she's in it's just women isn't it it's just women yeah um so uh she she's sort of she she's, she starts off homeless she's then kind of given this role and job by this tech company and then she decides to turn on it and she yeah she founds this commune with i think sort of five or six other women um and again it's you know i think it's two fingers to the patriarchy as well as to the capitalist hegemony and two fingers to uh, the idea of washing yeah or cleanness and actually <laughs> i sound like i sound very prim like a prim <laughs> granny here those those who like washing and esteem soap will not like this book um interestingly <laughs> it was supposed to come out last year exactly this time last year uh march or may, maybe early april 2020 and it was put back as many big releases were because in the early days of the pandemic no one knew what was going on and everyone thought it was a bad time to launch a book but also there's a lot of stuff about hygiene and hand washing and cleanliness and disease and pestilence you know it's called come join our disease so it's sort of it came out it was supposed to come out originally at a time when everyone was this was such a kind of new obsession understand of an obsession that we all had and in a way it might have been better had it just been released uh, you know in those early days but of course, it still has many things to tell us. Um, and then paired with that uh, is another bonk, differently bonkers sounding book by Alan Warner um, called Kitchener 434, which concerns an ageing butler to, no, well, I'm sorry, a butler to an ageing rock star. Uh, Molly Guinness has reviewed the book. Uh, she refers to this eccentric servant who's called Crofton Clark as many things, a prissy retainer, a roadie, a super fan, a lover of architecture and natural beauty, he is also really quite creepy. It's sort of, I mean, you know, you see Butler, you think Ishiguru, but it, it does sound like a kind of pastiche, a kind of grotesque, sort of gothic-y pastiche of the remains of the day. Um, there are some great little quotes in it that, she, that, that, that Molly outlines for us. And yeah, it sounds, it sounds pretty fun, but also I think she was quite moved by it. It doesn't sound in the description as if it's going to sort of be filled with pathos, but it does actually sound ultimately quite moving. It's usually, I mean, Alan, I've read um, the Alan Warner ones I've read is the one about the Sopranos. Is in fact, is it just called The Sopranos? The Sopranos, yeah, and then there was a follow-up as well. Yeah, and that's that's very, that's all very boisterous. That's about as far from Remains of the Day as you could, <laughs> exactly. you could be. Lots of, lots of heavy drinking, <laughs> lots of foul language. It's basically, it's a page of foulness. This, this, this <laughs> page. I mean, I think, I think there's a fair, a fair amount of behaving badly and uh yeah and, and swearing in this one which again is not it's not very mr stevens and the remains of the day but i think that's you know it's very much the point more filth toby Bring more in filth. More. i'm sorry everybody 
<laughs> Don't be sorry. It's tremendous. And now we're going to go back over to the States, but to a very different area, into the depths of Arkansas, where a Korean couple, Jacob and Monica, have arrived with their Korean-American children, Anne and David, to start a new life. They've been living in California, thinking living by sexing chickens, but Jacob wants his own land and to make his own way by working that land. Their story is told in the new film Minari. As our reviewer, Eugene Grace Wirtz, puts it, it's an American dream story, but maybe not the one you're thinking of. And we're delighted that Grace is here to talk to us about it. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm going to start with this seems like a simple question, but actually I don't know if it is a simple question. What um, what kind of category or, or genre do you think you would put Minari into? Well, I've heard it described a number of different ways. Um, I happen to see the Arkansas Times describe it as the most authentic coming of age story that they had ever seen uh, filmed on their land. And as an aside, actually, it was filmed in Oklahoma, so we won't tell Arkansas Times that. <laughs> okay, yeah, don't point that um, out to them. So if you're if you're looking at it from the, the child's point of view, um, David, who is played by Alan Kim, certainly it would be a coming-of-age story. Um, if you were looking at it from an immigrant's point of view, from an adult immigrant's point of view, it would be um, a twist on an immigrant story. Um, if you were looking at it from a marital point of view, it could easily be a marital strife story. So it has so many different layers, which I think is part of the richness of this movie. It did seem like that to me that that, that you you could also you could say it was a a, a family drama, or you could say it was pas- a pastoral film. You know, and it was about the city and the country as well, couldn't you? Absolutely. And there were moments that you know you could almost um, miss them because you can see that Jacob had some sort of complex, I would say, about him being like a rural person versus his wife, who was a city person, and she clearly wanted to remain a city person. And he really seemed to feel um, inferior to her in some ways, that he was not able to um, provide the urban life that she wanted. Um, Another way that you could see this story is an intergenerational story, because, of course, the grandmother comes on the scene and you know, that that adds such a beautiful and necessary level of humor and levity and in some moments grief. So I think you're right. There are so many different ways that you can look at this story. So it opens with the family arriving at their new home. And one of the first things we see is that Monica, um, the wife, is pretty shocked by what she sees, isn't she? It's all a surprise to her. So she's very negative about it. And she has that stance almost the whole way through the film, but she she does have some very good reasons for having that stance, doesn't she? She does. And there's such a wonderful moment when they pull up to the house and she, um, Monica is played by um, Yeri Han, who is a very slight person. And she has to kind of hoist herself into her new home because there are no stairs and the door probably starts around her belly button, if not higher. <laughs> and so... Um, it's very much a uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable home for her. But on top of that, um, because it's 50 acres in the middle of Arkansas, it's an hour away from the nearest hospital, which she's very concerned about because she has a medically fragile son. Um, David has a heart condition and she's telling him constantly throughout the film in a very heartbreaking way, David, don't run. You know, and you see these wide open spaces Um with nothing blocking his path. And you see this uh, visibly healthy, you know, to the to the eye looking young boy. And she's always saying, David, don't run. And you think, what is going on in the beginning the first time she says that? Um, and as a parent to, to watch that, that just, 
it hits very close to home to think, you know, not only is she in a state that she doesn't know a single soul in, she's in a country where she's far away from everything that she understands. And then on top of that, she doesn't have basic access to safety for her child. She's sort of pushed into that stance throughout, isn't she? Yeah, so she's very defensive from the very start. But she's, um, so they, they do they do a kind of deal, as you say, Monica and Jacob. And, and so then, as you say, Monica's mother arrives to live with them. And it becomes clear that they're, they're each other's only family um, and to help look after the kids, which, as you say, brings more conflict and, uh, and a lot of humour right into the home because David doesn't get on with her. Um, can you tell us about the grandma and also about the actor who plays her, please? Yeah, and I was so thrilled to see this actor. Her name is uh, Yoon Yajung. And I'm going to, uh, the way that I say her name is Yoon Yajung. Yoon is her uh, surname. And so um, she's one of the few Korean actors, um, as opposed to Korean American actors in the film. And um, even to me, who has not lived in Korea since I was six years old, she is like, um, an institution of her own right, you know? And um, I would say, you know, I could compare her to someone like Maggie Smith that, you know, the voice is instantly familiar to every um, Western viewer, but apparently she very, very, very much dislikes being um, described as a Western version of somebody very famous, (laughs) or I'm sorry, the Eastern version of somebody very famous, which I very much take to heart. And this is exactly something that I think the director and the writer, Isaac Lee Chung, I think he would agree with as well is that, you know, this movie is is insisting to stand on its own two feet. And so um, to return Yoon Yajung, she is the grandmother. She, um, she comes on the scene and she is not the grandmother that David was hoping for. She does not bake cookies. She wears men's underwear. She loves to watch wrestling. <laughs> she, she does. She swears quite a lot, doesn't she? She swears. <laughs> you refer to um, the, uh, the actor's tra- trademark saltiness, which I thought was a, a lovely expression. <laughs> <laughs> and so he picks that up from her. And I think it's so endearing because one of the funniest scenes in the movie, he's um, taught his little um, American buddy, Johnny, how to play this very iconic Korean game, card game. And he's just swearing up a blue streak in Korean. And Johnny, the the American kid, he's uh, the white American kid, I should say, because also David is American. He's born in uh, California. Um, he's incredibly impressed. And he's like, well, this is the best game ever. <laughs> and there's, yes, and there's a lot of conflict between... David and the grandma he kind of kicks against her he says she smells like Korea she doesn't you know he wants he wants her to make cookies and what would Korea even smell like to him I wonder because he's never even been there so it's (laughs) but they come to their own understanding don't they very haltingly so and I think very authentically because there are no sacred moments in this movie between them um, or really anybody else and and they kind of grope at an understanding you know there's I'm not going to give away um you know, that moment in the movie where he pulls an incredibly vicious crank, uh, prank on his grandmother mm. um, and it has consequences and he's being disciplined. And, you know, that to me all played out in a way that felt so familiar because, you know, um, Jacob, David's father is incredibly furious at his son for what he has done. Um, and the grandmother wants not to intrude, but she also does not want David to be punished or overly severely punished. And so she's standing up for him at the end. And, you know, there's one of these lines that she tells or says throughout the movie, you know, no, it was fine. It's so funny, (laughs) you know? And she says, you know, about the house, oh, it's on wheels. It's so funny. And she's 
providing this family this much needed perspective shift, you know, oh, this is not a tragedy. It's funny. You know, can't you guys see it? It's funny. And yes. to the family, it is not funny. They they have, you know, lost their sense of humor um, a long time ago because they have spent 10 years looking at chicken butts in you know, probably <laughs> yes. an airless factory in California. And yeah. I've been told, you know, you should be incredibly grateful that you get to look at chicken butts for 10 hours a day for 10 years in a row. And so I would think that that would grind the humor out of anyone, really. <laughs> we were talking about it a bit earlier when there, there are a couple of difficult moments um, with the, the kids at church. But you say that you say in your piece, these are they are very quickly smoothed over. They don't really encounter. Well, they do encounter some hostility, but you are braced for it, aren't you? How did you feel about that portrayal? Because I know in, in the piece you, you mentioned it in the context of the 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 shootings in Atlanta in March and the uh, you know the the appalling circumstances of that and the reaction by the police and that kind of thing. Yeah, and um, I haven't heard the media actually probe the director on these questions as much as I would love to. And if I had the chance, I would love to speak with him about you know he very intentionally um, detonated these moments and then diffused them very quickly. You know. Clearly, these were choices that he made where the racism was there, the microaggressions were there. For instance, you know, a Johnny who becomes a friend of David says to him, well, why is your face so flat? Which is a hurtful thing to hear, and we hear it all the time. And so um, I do struggle with that, especially in this given moment where, you know, the microaggressions have become not micro, they have become um, incredibly violent to the point where, we have had to have, you know, hashtag stop Asian hate and protect our elders because in in, in cities and um, towns all over this country, Asian people have been targeted purely because of the way that we appear. And um, you could be Asian in America and you could have four generations removed and have never been to Asia, but, you know, to the, to, to the white American on the street or the black American or whomever, you know, you are inescapably Asian and, and so we've become targets. And so um, in some ways I thought, oh, are those, were those moments missed opportunities in the film? But I respect the fact that he put a, a very authorial and, and personal take on those moments where um, this was not a movie about racism. And I think that he was pretty explicit about that. And I think Stephen Young, the actor who plays um, Jacob, he, he was also pretty um, overt about that, that this is not an identity movie. And I respect that as well, because, you know, at some point, when do we get to make a movie about a Korean American family that is not an identity movie? You know, that burden is always on, you know, writers of color or artists of color. And at some point, we hope that we're not always telling the same identity story and that we're not asked to tell that story over and over again. So I do, um, I do appreciate that very fine line that he's walking. Do you think the dating, do you think the dating of the film helped that, which is not to say there wasn't terrible racism in the 1980s, but because it's set in the 1980s, he's sort of allowed to sidestep the kind of political moment of identity politics and just talk about what he's interested in. That's a good point because microaggression as a concept did not, you know, exist back then. And, um, you know, maybe it was okay back in the 1980s for the church ladies to say, oh, oh, Monica, she's so cute, you know, and that moment, you know, to me, I don't want to be called cute, 
by, you know, people my age, because I am not a bunny or, you know, a pet. But in that moment, I think the audience was meant to take it at face value or maybe very slightly subverted, but more or less at face value. And so I think you are right. The fact that it's the 80s, maybe there's a little bit more of a broader pass, but the viewership, you know, here we are in 2021 and we're not in the 80s. So, you know, there is there is that tension. I also wanted to ask you about, talk about language in the film, because it's very important throughout, isn't it? Who speaks what and to whom? How, how does that work? This was one of my favorite, favorite parts of, of the film and the writing. Um, so the director was also the writer. Um, I, I assume that his first language was English, um, having been born in Colorado. I read that he wrote the entire uh, script first in English and had it translated. And he was very adamant that this movie would be predominantly spoken in Korean so that it would be authentic to the lived experience. Um, and so he had been very wary about whether this could be made um, and whether somebody would back it. And um, luckily he had a team of people who also felt very strongly, who were also Korean American and, you know, eventually got made um, the way that we know that it did, which is more than 50% in Korean. And I would say maybe closer to 75 or 80% in Korean. And not only is it, is it spoken in Korean, it's spoken in um, what we call Konglish, and it's a combination of Korean and English. And um, it's a sentence that becomes idiosyncratic to each speaker or to each family where certain words would be spoken in whatever word would have more you know, emotional weight or more emphatic weight given in a particular language. So for example, in my family, uh, we were not allowed to speak English at home because my parents were very concerned that we would lose the Korean. So we came to um, the States. I was six and my brother was three. And so we knew that we were not allowed to speak English at home. However, there were certain words that we felt like we had to speak in English. <laughs> or, you know, if we were tattling, you know, in the heat of the moment, um, I would say, oh, you know, so-and-so is kicking me. But instead of using the word kick in English, I would say the, the verb kick in Korean and just add the gerund ing. <laughs> and so um, I could say to myself, I, I follow the rules. I spoke in Korean and I, I could let that pass. And so as um, that was my lived experience and every Korean American um, child that I know growing up, like, you know, we, we kind of, for whether it's 90% English and 10% Korean, whether it's 90% Korean and 10% English, that combination is just inevitable. And I just thought, what a wonderful gift to this community that he preserved that and he fought for that. And it's uh, used to really powerful effect in the movie. And also, I mean, as as um, you, you mentioned, it's, it's a very beautiful film. And it's actually beautiful emotionally anyway, but it's just very visually beautiful as a kind of spectacle, isn't it? It is. And I appreciate it so much. Like, you know, there's that aerial view of the tractor making those um, very satisfying symmetrical rows into the land. And there were very intentional moments where it seemed like um, the cinematography and, and the directing was saying, here is an all American um, vista. But have you ever seen this vista with these people in it? It's a very um, courageous move. It's a very 
original and creative, even if this is maybe a vista we've seen before in other films, but not with these people. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Mary Norris and Eugene Grace Wirtz and to you, Toby, for joining us this week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Toby Lishtig and from me, goodbye. Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, award-winning actor Eddie Martin talks candidly about his parents' divorce, witnessing violent racist attacks as a child and coming to terms with his own spiritual and political beliefs. I'm not us, I'm the other, and I think that's my advantage. No one asks me to be me. They always ask me to be someone else which I quite like Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson Eddie Marzan in his own words now available as a podcast listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts Hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.